From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Uh, Even the mainstream U.S. press was compelled to report that the world now regards uh, George Bush as a greater threat to peace than Saddam Hussein. And that, in fact, is an understatement, uh, because much as Saddam Hussein was uh, hated and reviled, uh, he was not regarded as a threat, uh, even by the countries that he had attacked. Today, scholar, author, linguist, political activist Noam Chomsky. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman. Today, we'll spend the hour with Noam Chomsky, Institute Professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was in New York recently to honor the late Columbia University professor, Edward Said, who died this fall after a battle with leukemia for over a decade. They had spent time several years ago at the very theater that Noam Chomsky spoke at, uh, delivering a dress together on the Middle East. This speech was dedicated to Professor Edward Said. In the speech, Chomsky strongly criticized the Bush administration's war against Iraq and talked about the power investors have over world affairs, the media's capitulation to them, and much more. Noam Chomsky's latest book is called Hegemony or Survival, America's Quest for Global Dominance. Before that, he wrote the best-selling book, 9-1-1. This is Noam Chomsky at Columbia University. First remark uh, has to do with the title. Uh, the title that was announced was After the War, which is a good topic. We should be concerned with uh, what's coming ahead. But uh, any uh, title like that, especially in the United States, Uh, requires uh, a kind of a word of uh, caution. Uh, There is a trap which is deeply rooted in the intellectual culture, and we have to avoid it. Uh, The trap is a doctrine uh, uh, that I've sometimes called the doctrine of change of course. It's a doctrine that's invoked every two or three years in the United States, The content of the doctrine uh, is, uh, yes, in the past uh, we did some uh, uh, wrong things uh, because of our uh, innocence or uh, out of inadvertence, Uh, but now that's all over, uh, so we can, uh, let's not waste any more time on this uh, boring, stale stuff, which incidentally we suppressed and denied while it was happening, uh, but must now be effaced from history uh, as we march forward to a glorious uh, future. And if you look, it is literally every two or three years that the doctrine is invoked. Uh, There's a qualification. We're permitted, in fact uh, required, uh, to uh, uh, recall with uh, great uh, horror the uh, misdeeds of official enemies. And we're also required to uh, uh, admire... uh, with uh, awe, our own magnificent achievements in the past uh, in both categories, uh, relying in no small measure on uh, self-serving reconstructions, which quickly collapse if you uh, follow the path of uh, paying attention to the facts. Uh, But fortunately, that dangerous course is excluded 
by the convenient doctrine of uh, change of course, uh, which blocks uh, any such uh, heresies. Uh, the doctrine is entirely understandable uh, on the part of those who are engaged in uh, criminal enterprises, uh, which means just about any power system, uh, any system of concentrated power, past and present, uh, and of course it includes its acolytes, one of the major uh, commitments of uh, respected intellectuals right throughout history uh, is to be the acolytes of systems of power. Since intellectuals write history, it doesn't look like that, but you have to be cautious about uh, what people write about themselves. Uh, if you look carefully, you'll find that. Uh, the course, the doctrine is dishonest, uh, cowardly, uh, but has advantages. Uh, it uh, does uh, protect us uh, from the danger of uh, understanding uh, what's happening before our eyes and therefore inducing the kind of uh, conformism that is uh, useful to systems of power and domination. So it has its advantages. Uh, in any event, the word after in the title is appropriate, but with some qualifications that uh, should be brought, uh, kept in mind. Uh, and uh, what has happened before, if we escape the uh, domination of the doctrine, uh, what has happened before can be expected to persist for elementary reasons. Uh, policies and actions are rooted in institutions. Uh, there's some variation, but uh, limited. Uh, the institutions are stable. Uh, therefore, it's only reasonable to expect the policies and actions to persist, adapted to circumstances. Uh, and uh, if you want to understand anything about the world that is to come and have any uh, influence on the way it evolves, it's more than useful to keep this in mind. Well, let's go to uh, after the war. We might as well, adopting the doctrine of change of course, uh, we might as well start with today. Uh, so today, our leader is in London. Uh, the uh, mayor of London greeted him by declaring that uh, George Bush is the greatest threat to life on the planet uh, that we have most probably ever seen uh, as a walked in, I was told by someone that they just heard over the radio that someone else, I forget who, uh, announced that uh, he's the most unwelcome visitor to England since William the Conqueror. Uh, these, uh, uh, the, uh, these sentiments are described here as rather somehow with, met with some surprise, uh, but that uh, reflects again the useful uh, category, uh, the useful uh, quality of uh, forgetting the recent past. Uh, similar sentiments have been very widely expressed uh, since September 2002, to some extent before, but particularly since then. Uh, within weeks after September 2002, a crucial moment in world affairs, uh, within weeks uh, even the mainstream U.S. press was compelled to report that the world now regards uh, George Bush as a greater threat to peace than Saddam Hussein. And that, in fact, is an understatement uh, because much as Saddam Hussein was uh, hated and reviled, uh, he was not regarded as a threat uh, even by the countries that he had attacked, uh, Iran and Kuwait, 
uh, both of which understood perfectly well that after a decade of sanctions that had devastated the society uh, and after having been effectively disarmed, uh, however awful Saddam Hussein was, he wasn't going to threaten anybody. It was, in fact, the weakest country in the region. Uh, one of the reasons why it was attacked, it met the primary condition for a target of attack, namely totally defenseless and known to be. Uh, so in fact, they had, been, they had joined the other states in the region in trying to integrate uh, Iraq back into the region for several years over strong U.S. objections. So the statement, while correct, is understated. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, these kinds of reactions, those you hear today and you've been hearing for the past year, if you pay attention, are, uh, as far as I'm aware, entirely without precedent. I can't remember anything like them. And no matter how one decides to evaluate the sentiments that are expressed, uh, one thing is clear, uh, no sane person should uh, ignore them. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a European Union poll, which aroused some interest here. Uh, the poll uh, was asking Europeans uh, who, what they thought the gr was the greatest threat to world peace. And it turned out that the United States was ranked right next to North Korea and Iraq, same percentage. Well, that was felt to be a surprise, but it shouldn't have been a surprise because that's what polls have been showing for uh, a year, over a year. Uh, growing concern and fear that uh, the United States is out of control under the present leadership and is a tremendous threat to peace. Actually, the poll, the commentary on the poll focused on something else, uh, namely the U.S., North Korea, and Iran were ranked right below Israel, which was uh, ranked as the greatest threat to peace. But my strong suspicion is that that's because the questions in the poll were wrongly asked. Uh, you have to be really careful reading polls. Uh, Israel in itself is not a threat, much of a threat at all. But U.S. support for Israel is an enormous threat to world peace. And I presume that that's what people were answering however the question was phrased. And if that's correct, then the major threats perceived to world peace in Europe uh, are uh, U.S. support for uh, Israel, and, uh, which is uh, the regional superpower, uh, and uh, uh, U.S. actions elsewhere in the world. Well, if that's the right interpretation, uh, then the polls are reflecting an understanding of phenomena that are real, and important and widely understood. Uh, they were just pointed out in an important book that's about to appear by uh, Dilip Hero. He's one of the most astute and knowledgeable uh, commentator historians dealing with the contemporary Middle East and the uh, international framework in which its problems arise. Uh, what he says is uh, about after the war, uh, he's, the book's about Iraq, the Iraq war and its consequences. Uh, he says what has actually happened in Iraq is something deadlier than the worst scenarios sketched by the so-called uh, liberal pessimists. Uh, the invasion of Iraq has led to an alliance of Arab nationalism uh, with Islamic uh, militancy, uh, steering both of them towards an amalgam, uh, which is uh, very ominous, uh, for the region and, in fact, for the world. 
again, today's newspapers give you other examples of that. Uh, that's uh, and another contributing factor to this extremely dangerous amalgam uh, is uh, U.S. support for uh, Israel's continued rejection of a long-standing international consensus uh, on a political settlement for the Israel-Palestine issue and its uh, ongoing uh, actions to uh, undermine any possibility that a political settlement can be reached, always, crucially, uh, with decisive U.S. support. Otherwise, those actions are impossible. Uh, for 30 years now, the U.S. has been unilaterally, and that's worth stressing, unilaterally blocking the possibility of a political settlement and uh, uh, providing the decisive diplomatic, economic, and military means uh, that uh, permit the actions that step-by-step step make any such settlement uh, uh, impossible. That's dramatically true right now. Uh, it's all consistently depre- uh, suppressed in the doctrinal system. Uh, and now, of course, it's to be, if even mentioned, uh, eliminated from history by the usual means, the convenient doctrine of uh, uh, change of course. Uh, Well, uh, this has been decisive for 30 years, uh, and it's going on, and we should pay attention to it if we care about the future. Today's news, again, gives further reasons. Uh, With uh, uh, regard to Iraq, uh, the... uh, Predictions before the war by intelligence agencies and independent analysts were pretty uniform. It was predicted that the invasion of Iraq uh, would uh, increase the threat of terror, would yield the amalgam that De La Pura is talking about. It would increase the threat of terror and of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, The logic of that is straightforward. Uh, If you announce to people, I'm going to come and attack you uh, at will uh, without any pretext, Uh, they don't say, thank you, um, here's my neck, uh, cut it. Uh, What they do is uh, respond in some fashion. And uh, no one can respond to the United States in military force. Uh, The U.S. spends about as much by now as the rest of the world combined and is far more technologically advanced. Uh, So uh, people turn to the weapons available to them. And the weak do have weapons available to them. Two, in fact. uh, Terror and uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, which are now not that hard to construct. And sooner or later will be united. For example, they might be united and a small nuclear weapon uh, sneaked into a New York hotel room. Not at all out of the question. Uh, And by inciting terror and inciting proliferation uh, as a deterrent or for revenge, uh, those probabilities are being increased. Well, those those were the predictions before the Iraq war, and they've been verified, not surprisingly, since the war. Uh, It has apparently, according to specialists on the various countries involved, stimulated proliferation, not surprisingly, and it has certainly stimulated terror. The same intelligence agencies and independent analysts are reporting a sharp spike in recruitment for al-Qaeda-style organizations. And if you pay attention, you observe an increase of uh, horrendous uh, terrorist acts all over the world. Uh, 
exactly as predicted. Well, well the, uh, the administration uh, was certainly aware of this. I mean, they can figure it out themselves even without reading the reports of their own intelligence agencies. Uh, and they don't desire that outcome, uh, but they don't care that much. It just has a low priority ranked alongside of other concerns. And those other concerns are not insignificant. Some of them are domestic. They have, a, these are not conservatives. They are radical reactionary statists who are dedicated to unraveling uh, the progressive uh, uh, achievements, legislation, and uh, actions of the past century. Uh, and to do that, they have a very narrow hold on political power. They must maintain it in order to carry out that program. You see it day by day in the legislations produced and the actions undertaken. And they have an international program, which has been announced, dominating the world by force permanently, preventing any challenge, and in particular controlling the uh, very crucial uh, uh, energy resources of the world, mostly in the Middle East, secondarily in Central Asia and a few other places. Uh, those are serious goals, and uh, they're worth undertaking from the perspective of the policy managers, uh, even if it does increase the threat of uh, destruction, in fact, maybe destruction of the species, uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uh, terror which, uh, of which uh, the population of the United States uh, will also be subject sooner or later as before. Noam Chomsky, speaking at Columbia University, will come back to the speech. And if you'd like to get a copy of it, video or audio, you can call 1-800-881-2359, 1-800-881-2359. Back with Noam Chomsky in a minute. Jacob's Ladder, Chumbawamba, here on Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we return to the speech of Professor Noam Chomsky. How do Iraqis feel about all this? Well, you know, that's obviously critically important and much harder to determine. It's harder to determine the um, attitudes and opinions of people who are under military occupation. Uh, but it's not impossible. There's a series of U.S.-run polls taking place, and they're informative. So... Uh, one recent poll actually uh, had a front-page story in the New York Times with a headline uh, saying that uh, Iraqis are pleased to be rid of Saddam Hussein. Well, we didn't need a poll to tell us that. Uh, and presumably, although the question wasn't asked, uh, they are happy to be relieved of the murderous uh, U.S. sanctions, which had killed hundreds of thousands of people, uh, devastated the society and reduced it to 
total ruin. Uh, that question wasn't asked because you're not allowed to mention it. You're not allowed to mention that this took place. We don't consider our own massive crimes. They're, the doctrine of change, of course, is so extreme that you don't even mention them while they're going on, let alone in the past. Uh, so that question wasn't asked. Uh, and uh, what that almost predictable answer wasn't mentioned. Uh, also unmentioned is the fact that uh, the murderous uh, sanctions are a large part of the reason why Iraqis were unable to uh, send Saddam Hussein to the same fate that greeted other comparable monsters and tyrants and torturers who were also supported by the people who are now uh, in office in Washington, just as they supported Saddam Hussein right through his worst atrocities and long after the war with Iran. And there's quite a rogues gallery. Uh, Ceausescu of uh, Romania, for example, was quite comparable to Saddam, supported by the Reagan and Bush administrations right to the last minute, uh, overthrown from within. And the same is true of a long list. Uh, Marcos de Vallier, uh, Mobutu, uh, uh, Suharto, uh, long list. All strongly supported, as long as they could maintain power, overthrown from within, uh, ranking easily many of them with Saddam Hussein and brutality and terror. Uh, but uh, if you destroy a society and you compel the society to rely on the tyrant just for survival, things like that aren't going to happen. Uh, this has been understood for a long time. Uh, and uh, again, those are some of the things you just don't mention, just like you don't mention the effects of the sanctions. Well, uh, there was a more interesting aspect of the poll than the headline. If you read down further in the column, uh, there were other results given. Uh, one of the questions asked in the same poll uh, was uh, uh, people were asked for their how they... Uh, evaluated foreign leaders, a favorability ranking. Do you have a favorable opinion of you know, X, Y, and Z? Well, the one who ranked highest uh, was, by far, was French President Jacques Chirac, uh, who was the symbol, the international symbol of opposition to the invasion. Uh, well below him, you found Bush, and even below him, the rather pathetic Blair trailing behind. Uh, that was reported without comment, although evidently the New York Times reporter had some bothered him a little, and he came back to it a couple of weeks later and mentioned it in another context and had a comment on it. Uh, he gave the figures, and his comment was, go figure. Well, you know, I'm not sure how, exactly how to interpret that, but I presume what he meant is crazy Arabs, you know, go figure. Here we liberate them. And they're not thanking us for liberating. Uh, what can, you know, go figure. What can it possibly mean uh, if they supported, uh, if they regard Jacques Chirac as the most, with, give him the most highest favorable uh, ranking of any foreign leader? Well, you know, figure Columbia students might be able to figure out a different interpretation. Uh, but anyway, for the times, it was go figure. Uh, the uh, turn to uh, another poll uh, where this question was asked recent one. Uh, how do you regard the coalition forces? Uh, are they an occupying force or a liberating force? Uh, by five to one, they were called an occupying force. Uh, should the coalition forces leave? By five to three, uh, Iraqis wanted them to leave. 
That's a remarkable figure because about 95% of the population also reports that uh, the security situation is much worse than it was before the invasion. And the only thing that's keeping any kind of a lid on it is the occupying forces. But nevertheless, by a very substantial majority, they want, to leave, want them to leave. Well, what does that mean? Again, you can figure it out. Uh, other polls uh, are, ask people, why did the United States invade Iraq? Well, here it's uh, worth... There, in the United States, there's some answers, straight answers. So the official reason, widely repeated, as long as you could hang on to it, uh, was that uh, we invaded Iraq because of their weapons of mass destruction and their uh, links to terror, uh, which is just a, such a threat to us that we can't let it continue. Uh, and there was a massive uh, government media propaganda campaign about this starting in September 2002 when the invasion was effectively announced. And it did uh, drive a large part of the U.S. population completely off the international spectrum. Uh, the United States was the only country uh, where a large part of the population was genuinely afraid of uh, Saddam Hussein because of his weapons of mass destruction and his uh, links to terror. Uh, and it turns out that the uh, people who had those attitudes, those attitudes are strongly correlated with support for the war which is not in the least surprising. I mean, if I believed those things, I'd support the war too. I mean, if you believe that uh, here's a murderous tyrant accumulating weapons of mass destruction responsible for 9-11, uh, linked to al-Qaeda, planning new terror, we've got to stop them in time, yeah, it's a rational decision to invade Iraq. Uh, the, uh, of course, there's not the... Uh, it was never... There never was any reason to believe that there was a particle of truth to that. As I say, the U.S. was alone uh, in having any detectable part of the population uh, hold those opinions, even in places like Iran and Kuwait. Uh, well, the, uh, uh, the lying about that uh, continues until the present. It doesn't matter that it was all debunked. So George Bush, in his radio addresses just a couple of weeks ago, he continues to repeat that uh, the U.S., I'm quoting him, saved the world from a tyrant who was developing weapons of mass destruction uh, and cultivating ties to terror. Well, you know, nobody believes that, including his speechwriters. But they know it, but they know something else. They know that if you keep repeating a lie long and loud enough and get a, nobody takes you account for it, it'll become truth. Uh, there are plenty of precedents for that, not pretty ones to think about, but they're there, and you know them, so I won't go on with them. But it helps account for um, the reactions that uh, you hear around the world. Uh, the uh, collapse of the official stories about weapons of mass destruction and terror, they did have consequences. In fact, ominous consequences. The most significant consequence of the collapse of the story about weapons of mass destruction uh, was that it changed the official doctrine. All of this is taking place in the context of the national security strategy that was announced in September 2002. And that strategy was based on the principle that if a country has weapons of mass destruction, the United States is entitled to attack it uh, in anticipatory self-defense, what's called in the press and some commentary preemptive war, but that's a total fabrication. It has nothing to do with preemptive war. It's just a euphemism for direct aggression. Uh, as 
Arthur Schlesinger pointed out, preemption means something and nothing like that. But that was the doctrine, whatever you think about it. That doctrine's been changed uh, with the uh, discovery that there were no weapons of mass destruction. The doctrine has been changed so that now the United States has the right and authority, uh, sovereign right, to attack any country that has the intent uh, and ability to develop weapons of mass destruction. Okay, that's a significant change. That lowers the bars on aggression very significantly. In fact, it makes it universal. Uh, every country has the ability to develop weapons of mass destruction. Uh, any country with a high school chemistry and biology lab has that capacity. And uh, intent is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you don't need any evidence for it. Uh, so that what that's saying, in effect, is everybody's liable to attack. We have the sovereign right to attack anyone we want. That's a significant change in the doctrine. And even if it's not reported here, it's noticed by the potential victims, and the potential victims are now generalized, essentially universally. Uh, another consequence of the collapse of the official reasons is that there's a new, uh, you know, there's a new um, doctrine about why we went to war. It was a reflection of what the press calls our yearning for democracy. It's a term became prominent in the Reagan years. We have a yearning for democracy. Uh, and it's, uh, so, so we invaded Iraq in order to establish a democracy there because of our yearning for democracy and, in fact, to democratize the whole Middle East and so on. Uh, if you read the uh, commentary on this, you know, the press, journals, and so on, uh, I think you'll discover that this assumption is close to universal. Uh, even the critics, the strongest critics, uh, say, yes, uh, invaded to uh, create democracy, but, you know, premature, can't do it, circumstances aren't right, uh, one criticism or another. Uh, and sometimes the uh, uh, repetition of this uh, assumption reach the, reaches uh, the level of uh, uh, really uh, rapturous uh, acclaim, uh, the kind you may remember from you know, reading the North Korean press, if you look at it. Uh, David Ignatius, the uh, highly respected leading commentator in the Washington Globe, uh, recently, just a couple of weeks ago, described uh, the invasion of Iraq as the most idealistic war fought in modern times, fought solely to bring democracy to Iraq and the region. And, you know, how can you be more noble than that? Uh, he was particularly impressed with uh, Paul Wolfowitz, the grand visionary uh, of the yearning for democracy, uh, who he describes as a genuine intellectual whose heart bleeds for the oppressed in, Muslim, in the Muslim world and who dreams of liberating it. Uh, so presumably that explains his career, uh, like his very strong support for uh, Suharto in Indonesia, one of the worst mass murderers and killers and aggressors and torturers. Uh, Wolfowitz was ambassador to Indonesia, you know, very full of support for his friend Suharto. And that goes right up till uh, 1997, you know, a couple of months before Suharto was overthrown by an internal revolution. Uh, 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 however, it's only fair to say that Wolfowitz's support for democracy and, and yearning, you know, his uh, heart bleeding for the tortured victims is, is ecumenical. It's not limited to Muslims. 
So he had the same attitude toward, he was the uh, high official in the State Department uh, uh, under Reagan concerned with uh, Asian affairs, and that support extended to uh, uh, the brutal, vicious dictator uh, Chun of South Korea, uh, who despite the support of the Reagan administration to the very end was overthrown by a mass popular movement in 1987. It extends to Marcos in the Philippines, uh, the Reagan administration was full of what they called love for Marcos and his love of democracy, and that continued until he was overthrown to the end. All of this is on Wolfowitz's watch, uh, and it uh, continues. I won't go on with it, uh, but all of this is irrelevant because of the convenient doctrine of change of course. So yes, he's a grand visionary who loves democracy and whose heart bleeds for the victims of oppression, and if there's a record that shows precisely the opposite, it's just that boring old stuff which we forget about uh, because that's uh, now we're going on to the future. Well, I don't know how far back the doctrine of change, of course, uh, extends, but if it extends a few months, uh, then there's some other things that you might mention. Uh, so, for example, Wolfowitz uh, dramatically uh, 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 illustrated his uh, love of democracy uh, earlier this year when he berated the Turkish military for failing to intervene to prevent the elected government from keeping to the position of 95% of the population. Okay, Turkish, about 95% of the population was opposed to participation in the uh, U.S. war in Iraq. And uh, surprisingly, the elected government went along with them, which caused absolute fury in the United States. Powell instantly announced that they were going to be harshly punished for this, cutting back aid and so on. Uh, they were denounced all over the press. Uh, former ambassador uh, Morton Abramowitz uh, wrote an article saying this proves that the government lacks democratic credentials uh, because it's not listening to orders from Crawford, Washington, Crawford and Washington. It's following 95% of the population. But Wolfowitz went even beyond denouncing the military for not intervening uh, and uh, uh, demanding that they apologize to the United States for this uh, and uh, recognize that their duty is, as he put it, to help the United States. Now, that's real commitment to democracy. Uh, and uh, that's a couple of months ago, an uh, extenuation of Wolfowitz. One might say that this was in the midst of a display of hatred and contempt for democracy of a sort that I've never seen in the past. It was so obvious you couldn't ignore it, all connected with this same insistence of a few governments on keeping to the overwhelming position of their population bitterly condemned for this across the spectrum. Uh, the ones that were hailed were the ones that disregarded even larger percentages of their population. They were the bold New Europe, the wave of the future. These great Churchillian figures like Berlusconi, for example. Uh, the, uh, I've never seen anything like that. And what's astonishing and revealing to us and important for the future is that this display of total hatred for democracy went side by side with a chorus of self-adulation for our yearning about our yearning for democracy. I mean, to be able to carry that off is a very impressive achievement 
uh, not only of the media, but of educated intellectuals generally. I think it would be hard to mimic that in a totalitarian state. You might want to think about it and what it means. MIT professor Noam Chomsky speaking at Miller Theater at Columbia University in November. We're going to come back to the speech. If you want to get a copy of it, you can call 1-800-881-2359 if you'd like to get a videotape of this speech. 1-800-881-2359. Back with Noam Chomsky in a minute. the world. Michael Franti here on Democracy Now! as we return to Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, speaking at Columbia University this past November. Well, going back to uh, why did the United States invade Iraq, uh, there's a story here, changing story, but always a story. And Iraqis have some opinions about it, too. Uh, A few days after the Washington Post uh, article with the ode to our awesome uh, magnificence. A few days later, they actually published a poll uh, in which Iraqis were asked, among other things, why did the United States invade Iraq? And there were some that agreed that the U.S. invaded Iraq to uh, uh, establish democracy. One percent. So uh, Wolfowitz and the American intellectual community are not totally without support in Iraq. Uh, I think about 4%, if I remember, thought it was to help Iraqis. Then come the obvious reasons, which, uh, you know, go figure type reasons. Uh, Well, again, that must be the uh, crazy Arabs. Uh, They don't understand us. Uh, They're kind of like the Europeans, uh, as other uh, distinguished commentators have pointed out. For 200 years, uh, Europe has failed to understand what makes the United States tick. Uh, They think we have crass motives and so on. They don't know that we're driven by uh, indescribable uh, idealism. Max Boot, uh, Robert Kagan, others, uh, who are apparently unaware that they're simply plagiarizing the most disgraceful episodes of European imperialism where every horrendous act in England and France and Germany and everywhere else uh, was accompanied by exactly the same rhetoric. I mean, almost to the word sometimes. Anyhow, they don't understand it. Uh, uh, The uh, Iraqis, uh, maybe their failure to comprehend what we're doing, uh, follows from the fact that they haven't yet mastered the doctrine of change of course. Uh, so uh, they don't know that uh, they somehow think that everything we've done in the past might have some bearing uh, on what's happening now. 
and maybe they're even aware that uh, what's held here, there, there's something here you read about called the, uh, the neo-Reaganite, uh, the uh, uh, pursuing the, the you know, hopes that Bush will pursue the, what's called the neo-Reaganite course of democracy enhancement. That was the leading theme of the Reagan administration, yearning for democracy and democracy enhancement. Uh, and uh, something did happen. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the polls I just quoted, uh, you see a sophisticated comprehension of it. So 1% of the Iraqi population says the U.S. invaded to establish democracy, but about half the population uh, says the U.S. will establish a democratic form of government. Okay. And they add the U.S. will maintain pressure and influence on that democratic form of government. And that's correct. The United States, like every other conquering power, I mean, even Stalin, uh, wants to establish something that will be called a democratic form of government, but will make sure that it operates within fixed limits. So Stalin was full of the most uh, impressive rhetoric about the, the need for democracy, even established people's democracies, you know, had votes, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and that's conventional. Uh, and in fact, the more uh, you know, honest scholars and uh, even participants in the so-called democracy enhancement programs recognize uh, that the U.S. was willing to establish democracy, or at least to tolerate it, but only, I'm quoting, top-down forms of democracy uh, in which traditional elites linked to the United States retain power, uh, whatever the democratic forms. Actually, that holds internally to the United States as well. Uh, but uh, that's, that conception of democracy is not only permitted, but in fact preferred, uh, if only for public relations reason, uh, reasons. And uh, evidently, uh, Iraqis have some um, insight into this fact, judging by poll figures like this, assuming that they're not just crazy Arabs and you can't explain anything. But if you try to give an explanation, it doesn't seem hard to... Uh, give one, and it is, after all, their own experience. I mean, the British and their, who created Iraq for their own interests, uh, when they ran that part of the world, uh, they did pretty much the same thing. Uh, you go back to the British colonial office records in the First World War, uh, they discussed how they should set up in the region that they're running what they called uh, Arab facades, uh, that is, weak, pliable governments, if they can look democratic, that's fine, uh, as long as the British effectively rule behind one or another constitutional fiction, like formal democracy. As long as that can be done, then the Arab facades are fine. Uh, collaborators should run the government, uh, both the political and the military side, and that's incidentally the way empires usually run. They run with collaborators. Uh, so, like when the, even the worst killers and tyrants, say the Nazis in occupied Europe, uh, they didn't administer the countries. France was administered by the French. The security forces were French. Uh, same throughout the region. Uh, Stalin, uh, the Russians in uh, Eastern Europe rarely had to intervene. The countries were controlled by domestic collaborators, governments, security forces, and so on. And that's typical of the history of empire. In fact, what's amazing about the Iraqi occupation, uh, surprises me at least, is that uh, the 
occupiers have been so incompetent and arrogant and ignorant that they haven't been able to carry off what should have been one of the easiest military occupations in history uh, uh, and certainly has been carried out by plenty of others. Characteristically, military occupations succeed under much more difficult conditions. Uh, here, there's no external... It's not like Nazi Germany, you know, where there was external support for resistance and the country was under attack. Here, the, no attack, you know, no external support for resistance. They did end the sanctions, you know, tremendous benefit. They got rid of a tyrant. Uh, uh, how can you fail? You know, somehow it's failing. That's... Uh, Interesting to see why. One, the words I just used, uh, arrogance, incompetence, and ignorance, uh, are in fact the words uh, of uh, a high official of um, one of the major NGOs uh, who's had experience, I can't mention his name, who's uh, had experience all over the most worst parts of the world and said he'd, after a couple of months in Baghdad that he'd never seen anything like it. Uh, well, anyway, that's where it is. Uh, the Bush administration has announced new plans the last couple of days that are supposed to relieve this unimaginable failure, and they've been very highly praised. Uh, you look at the plans. Uh, the, incidentally, among... Uh, 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 I'll come back to that in a second, but among the plans they've already implemented uh, are, uh, as you know, uh, imposing uh, an extremely uh, harsh... Uh, a neoliberal economic program, which effectively hands the entire economy uh, over to uh, foreign investors and banks uh, and local collaborators, uh, it's certain that no sovereign country uh, would ever uh, accept such a uh, uh, such a regime. And it has been pointed out. You know, you're starting to get commentary in law journals and a few other places uh, that this is all totally illegal. It's in radical violation of the Geneva Conventions on Occupation, and furthermore, that they've been pointed out that any independent uh, Iraqi government is very likely to just renounce all of these agreements because they're imposed by force, illegally, they have no status, and that would uh, leave the U.S. taxpayer with a huge bill to pay uh, for uh, all the actions that have been undertaken uh, under the rubric of this uh, these illegal measures. Well, those critical comments are making a, an assumption that the U.S. is someday going to permit an independent Iraqi government to exist. And where's that assumption come from? Can you find a basis for that in the history of the control of uh, um, the backyard, you know, Caribbean, uh, Central America for a century or anywhere else for that matter? I think you have a hard time finding it. But if you adopt the doctrine of change, of course. You don't have to worry about ugly little questions like that. Uh, when the new plans were announced a few days ago, as I said, highly praised, uh, there's a small aspects of them which receive less attention. Uh, one is that they include a status of forces agreement of a familiar kind, uh, which uh, guarantees the right of uh, the U.S. military uh, to remain without change in Iraq under its own decisions and to establish military bases, which are to be permanent military bases, uh, on the analogy, and this is described as of uh, Afghanistan and Kosovo. So the countries can go to wreck and ruin, nobody cares about that, uh, but the U.S. retains the military bases 
uh, in Iraq, it's particularly important, uh, not like much more so than Afghanistan and Kosovo, although those are related, uh, because having a major military base at the heart of the oil-producing regions is a very significant achievement. The U.S. has not, the whole U.S. military basing system for years around the world has been oriented toward the Middle East, the main energy-producing region. But the U.S. hasn't had any stable bases there up till a couple of years ago. The nearest one was in the British island of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, uh, from which the inhabitants were expelled, and the British courts uh, ordered uh, the government to allow them to return. Uh, but then there's that thing called the special relationship that people talk about. Under the special relationship, if the British courts uh, order the government to allow the inhabitants to return and the partner says, get lost, uh, they get lost. Uh, so the bases remain and the inhabitants don't return. One small aspect of the special relationship. And many others like it. Uh, the, uh, uh, but now they're the bases are coming closer. So Afghanistan is close by. Kosovo is much closer to the oil-producing regions than earlier ones. Uh, the bases in Central Asia, uh, where the U.S. is now supporting another rogues gallery comparable to the first term of the same people, uh, Karimov and others belong in the same category. Uh, they... Uh, uh, the bases there are, again, part of the encircling of the major Middle East region and also placing U.S. corporations and interests in an uh, effective position for, their, for control of Central Asian resources, which are not at the level of Middle East but are not insignificant. Uh, a base right in the middle is extremely important, and that's very crucial for world control, that has been understood for years. Uh, the, uh, it's particularly important to control the Middle East oil reserves, roughly expected to be about two-thirds of energy reserves in the coming years, uh, because that provides what George Kennan once called veto power uh, over the uh, actions of uh, others in the world. And the others in the world who are of most concern are the other major economic centers in what has been a tripolar uh, economic world for a quarter of a century, Europe and Northeast Asia, which is the most dynamic economic region of the world. Uh, they, there has always been a concern with Europe, it goes back half a century, uh, that they might move on an independent course. Uh, and that's a deep concern of U.S. policymakers, control of, base, uh, control of uh, energy and also of sea lanes, uh, is one way uh, to forestall, forestall such efforts. It's not insignificant. Uh, well, it's important to bear in mind, finally, that the in astonishing reaction, global reaction and domestic reaction to the Bush administration's uh, uh, actions and plans, uh, it's not just a matter of the invasion of Iraq. I mean, it's maybe the dramatic one, but that's against a background. If the invasion had taken place without the background, you wouldn't get this reaction. It's widely understood that the invasion of Iraq was uh, what's sometimes called an exemplary action. That is an action undertaken to demonstrate to the world that the administration was very serious about the doctrine that had just been announced 
invasion of Iraq was announced about the same time as the national security strategy. And the doctrine uh, did declare that the U.S. has the right of uh, aggression at will, without pretext, uh, without international authorization. It was announced quite brazenly. It's not entirely new by any means, but the brazenness of the proclamation and the instant implementation uh, made it clear that this is a significant turning point. Uh, Foreign Affairs, the main establishment journal, immediately, a couple of weeks later, had a major article uh, describing what it called the new imperial grand strategy of the Bush administration, which it went on to describe in muted terms uh, as a great danger to the United States uh, and the world, a very widely held view. Uh, And uh, it's this, the exemplary action announced at once, the invasion of Iraq, was combined with a few, several others, which are equally and maybe even more ominous. Uh, Right after, uh, a couple of weeks after the national security strategy was announced and the invasion was announced, the Space Command, which is a charge of militarization of space, uh, announced that uh, it was changing. It, it, it uh, uh, presented its plans for the next couple of years, and it said we're shifting the mission from control of space, which was the Clinton doctrine, uh, to ownership of space. So we're moving from control to ownership. Uh, well, that's in accord with the national security strategy. Uh, no potential challenge to U.S. authority will ever be tolerated and force will be used to prevent it. Well, space is a new frontier. So we're not just going to control it, we're going to own it. No one's going to get near it. And they spell out what that means. That means putting putting up space platforms, uh, which can be used for offensive military weapons, nuclear and non-nuclear, highly lethal weapons, uh, which can strike anywhere on Earth, Uh, instantaneously, with no warning. Uh, uh, The world is to be covered with uh, uh, hypersonic drones which are going to give instant information back to some command post in the Colorado mountains or whatever about somebody crossing the street in Istanbul or whatever they happen to be looking at. Uh, In principle, that means that the entire world is at mercy of the Pentagon, instantaneous attack with highly destructive weapons, no warning. This is backed up by a first strike policy, which again is not new. Clinton had it too, but it's uh, much more uh, clearly enunciated. Uh, This reduces the need for forward bases, which are often a pain in the neck because people don't like them, uh, since you have a forward base, namely the space, space which you own. And it, puts the whole, it does literally put the whole world at the mercy of uh, 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 the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, there are uh, other uh, futuristic programs which have also been announced. If you take a look at the DARPA, it's a good place to look. You know, the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Pentagon are planning some pretty astonishing things uh, described as potential military measures, but it's worth remembering that there's something that the Pentagon knows that doesn't really seem to penetrate much into economics departments, and that is that the economy as a whole 
relies very heavily on a dynamic state sector uh, which socializes cost and risk, privatizes profit, uh, not only if for a long time it's been under uh, uh, a military cover, now it's moving to other covers as the cutting edge of the economy becomes biology-based rather than electronics-based. You see a shift in federal funding reflecting that understanding. And the DARPA programs are in things like uh, neuroengineering and other areas which are expected to be part of the cutting edge of the economy. So sooner or later, after the public pays the costs, if anything comes out, you hand it over to private corporations. It's uh, known as free enterprise officially. All of this uh, increases the threats to survival, uh, which is not unusual. If you take a look at history, including recent history, it's simply replete with uh, illustrations of how uh, leaders have uh, been willing to face destruction, a significant risk of destruction, in order to uh, achieve uh, narrow interests, to advance narrow interests of uh, power and domination and enrichment, uh, in this case, uh, shaping the powerful state to serve their interests and cut off the parts that serve the interests of the public. Uh, there are differences today. Uh, for one thing, the administration is at an extreme reactionary end of a rather narrow planning spectrum, uh, which is the reason for the enormous uh, reaction. And, of course, the scale is different. Uh, the stakes are much higher than they've been in the past, uh, it's not so clear that uh, there's much time left uh, to prevent uh, uh, literal destruction of the species or something rather close to it. Uh, there may not be much time left to reverse this course. Uh, and uh, we know, if we're honest, that we can do it, but it's going to require will and dedication. It's not going to happen by itself. Noam Chomsky, speaking at Miller Theatre, Columbia University on November 20th, 2003, honoring the late Professor Edward Said. And that does it for today's program. If you'd like to get a video copy of the show, you can call 1-800-881-2359. That's 1-800-881-2359. Our website is www.democracynow.org, democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Sharif abdul Kadus, Anna Noguera, Elizabeth Press, Jeremy Scahill, and Pervez Sharma. Mike DeFilippo and Rich Kim are our engineers. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>